Welcome to Unaltered Views with your host, Abena and And Desi. So today we'll go ahead to introduce our guests. So what we would expect from each one of you is to mention your name and where you currently live. You could also talk about where you're from because that would be like very important in our conversation today. So we can start with you, Afiba, and then Princess. Um, hi, my name is Afiba. Um, I currently reside in Rexburg, Idaho. <laughs> Um, and I'm from Ghana. Um, hi, I'm Princess, and um, I'm from Liberia, and I lived in Utah. That's great. Yeah, so as we are all aware, this week has been incredibly difficult for a lot of us, and as such, we will not be talking about how our week went, what we did, and the usual good stuff. Instead, we are creating a safe space for each one of us here. So in this episode, we will talk about the current events, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And for all of our guests today, anything within the scope of this topic is welcome. At the same time, this week, Nigerian social, me- Nigerian social media brought up the discussion on rape culture. So we also want to share our take on this conversation. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Okay, so first off, I think we'll start with Black Lives Matter and just the issue on race and being black in America. So Afiba, first of all, we want to start with you because clearly you lived in Ghana and now you live in the US. So you definitely had to come to a point where you realized that you were black. And when did that realization come for you? How have you been able to navigate this space of being Black? And just anything you want to share on racism, being Black, being a Black woman, and what your experience has been so far will be appreciated. So over to you. Wow. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Let me just, well, where and how do I even start this? well, gr- growing up in Ghana, it's, I think even Ch- Chimamanda said this herself. Like, she didn't realize she was black until she came here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know I was black, black, but I wasn't reminded all the time that, hey, you are black, you know, you, your skin is black. There were other things involved. But coming here, I realized my first, my first few encounters with Americans with the white American was all about oh what is it like in Africa oh so you're from Africa how did you get here that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it was really confusing and weird at first because I was like um, I mean how do how how was welcome to this country it's by plane right <laughs> you know <laughs> and um, Fast track to 
this current issue of racism, well, not current, but this <laughs> this issue of racism. This issue that erupted again. This <laughs> issue that erupted again. Let's just say at at first, it, I didn't really get it at first because I I wasn't hadn't opened my mind to it. I just didn't get. I mean, I knew it was there. I had experience in myself. But I thought, at first, I thought my African-American siblings were doing too much. I thought they kept, I, I thought they were dragging it. And um, I do feel bad now thinking about it because I realized I hadn't educated myself on mm-hmm. the whole topic of racism. Right. Um, and up until like, um, a year or two ago, I realized just how, prevalence it is just how institutionalized it is mm-hmm. and those who follow me on social media know how much how much of a vo- like how loud my voice is now on racism and i think it's because i experienced it myself day in day out and it just gets me mad <laughs> just yeah <laughs> absolutely that makes that makes total sense what would you say i know you work in a health setting and you've definitely express some some issues in that regard so is there anything you think you want to share here with how that has worked in your workplace and how you've like worked through that in my woman Mm -hmm. wow oh there's a lot to say but um Do you want to pause here? Yeah. <laughs> sure. I can cut it, but... Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 That's true. Um, so I would say, current, like, at this moment, for the very long, for the longest time, I realized I was the only Black person in my workplace. Um, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with it, but I've had people, I've been in so many situations where my own co-workers have questioned my competence and just how well I can think. I kept telling myself, oh, it's all right. They just don't know me and stuff like that. But I realized, hey, why do I always have to be the one asked if I can do this or if you know what this is about? Why don't they ask their own people? Like, why don't they ask other co-workers? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time I asked one of the bosses, quote unquote, that why don't they have more international people, more people like more people of color in a particular position? And she couldn't really answer me. All she said was the I think she, she had to think for a while and all she could tell me was, Oh well, because those people don't haven't given a good example. Now, yeah, and I was like, hmm. I mean, I wish I had talked. I wish I had, had been more vocal at that point, and I regret it now. But I was like, oh, so there. At that moment, I just generalized everyone, including me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Says, also, if you could um, share with us. From the experience being black in America, being a black woman, if you have 
specific experiences you want to share with regards to you have to you can go ahead and let us know um okay what do i start from um well just like annie was saying i am also guilty as well um i like i knew of racism back home but i really didn't think it was like like a big thing until I got here. I mean, because I remember in history class, like we were taught about like slavery, racism and all those things and how it ended. Right. And in my mind, I was like, okay, things are fine. And uh, so when I got here, um, I like, I was in Detroit, Michigan um, for like two years before moving to Utah. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel bad, but like saying this, I was so like, you know, judgy, like, I didn't understand why, like, uh, my friends, them, my African-American friends, uh, why they were, like, you know, making this a big deal. I thought they were just so angry because of the past. But um, not until I had, like, an experience that really made me to, um, like, realize that, oh, this thing is real. This, this racism is true. Uh, it's, it's for real. Even, like, now it's happening and it's very critical. Mm-hmm. Um, I I worked in the health uh, the health setting, and um, I had an experience where uh, there was a patient that refused to get you know seen by me because um, she just didn't she just didn't think I wasn't good enough and that I won't like um, I don't know in her mind and she was like really really rude so at first I I didn't get it but I saw how she was like how she spoke to my my coworker, it was totally different from the way she spoke to me. And because of my dad, my boss came in, he was like, okay, I don't think we're going to see you here with that attitude. She just like didn't want me to like, you know, take her vitals and just check her in because of my complexion. She was just like, no, I want this like, you know, particular person to touch me, not you. And I felt really bad. That like really, really hurt me. When I came home, I told, well, my husband then, he was my fiance then. Mm-hmm. I told him about the situation and he shared some some story with me and I was like wow so this thing is 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 really weird uh real and I had another experience where I uh, went to the grocery store um to get some things and to get food and I like um I decided to do self-checkout because I had less like less than 10 items in my my uh my shopping basket and um but it was like it was just like, you know, just food stuff and stuff. So anyways, I, I went to the self-checkout portion and I decided to check out and I noticed that one of the cashiers, she was already in front, but then she came like back to where I was just standing, staring at me. And before I noticed it, there was another security, this thing actually happened like two weeks ago. There was a security dude just in the back. I don't know. I was like so confused. So anyway, so I checked out. Uh, I had two onions, so I check out one, and the other one I like hold it. So the one that I check out first, I held it in my hand, mm-hmm. and then I took the other one, the other one to you know to scan it. And this lady just came, was like, no, 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 you have to scan both before you put it in the basket. And I was like, oh yeah, I did. And she said no, so she had to like go through the list of things that I scanned, and then she saw it was dead, and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I thought you didn't, you didn't check it. And I just thought that was so weird because we had other people that were checking out too. Why is it that they were like observing me? And I noticed that, oh, I was wearing this like hoodie and I was in like some sweats and the way I dressed and also because of my skin color. So they probably thought I was dead to steal or whatever. 
I felt I felt really embarrassed. And when I came home, I was like, wow. So like, you know, this this thing is 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 really real. This is like my second time. Um, I'm sorry, but my question is, why why does someone in a hoodie put them in a certain criteria immediately? It doesn't make sense to me. Exactly. I I I spoke to the, I spoke to their manager about it, and they just apologized that oh they've been having people come in and take stuff. And I was like, well, I wasn't the only one checking things out. Like, what yeah. do you have to monitor me like Basically, that? You, you know, fit, you fit the description of someone who will come in to take stuff. That's, mm-hmm. that's what they were trying to communicate to you. Like, yep. Yep. This is ridiculous. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this is, is it is. It's ridiculous. I'm glad you brought up the shopping thing. Because I, just this morning, I was talking to my husband and he was, he was on the phone with his mom and it just sparked a conversation. Because he was like, even going to the shop, like I've literally been in a situation where we go shop and then the the owner of the place or the manager or whatever like has their I has his or eye on us like the whole time. Hmm. The point of following you just to make sure you you don't do. I'm like, why why should I why do I have like why do I have to go through this? Why do you have to do this when clearly there are other shoppers? Of a different skin color, obviously. Mm-hmm. Who aren't going through what we are going through? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's totally ridiculous. Even for me, in the in the first meeting, I didn't really talk about my experience because the truth of the matter is, I'm not someone who is very observant. Like I take things very lightly. So in a lot of situations, I'm very oblivious to what's happening around me. And I can say same for this. So I don't think I have been observant enough to like notice any like racial um, racial things that have racial connotations or like any microaggression whatsoever. But for me, I think what made a change was a couple of years ago, I took a class that kind of opened my mind to like injustices of several kinds so like with gender issues with race with sexuality and i was like wow like yes this is actually a thing like this is like really a thing and so i started to also like be conscious about it and i noticed that this past academic year so this past academic year i was like a lab leader I was in one of my research labs. So basically what meant what that meant was I was in charge of other research assistants in like directing projects that our professor would administer to us. And obviously I was a black woman with research assistants who were under me who were like white men. So I would always go through the experience of people like just countering every single thing I say. I give them instructions, and because I'm a black woman, different from them, who is, I don't know, like I like to think, because I sound different from them, I'm from Ghana, I'm from Africa, like I'm probably not well listened to let them know. So literally every single thing, even the littlest thing, I would give a suggestion, and you have a white guy just say something that, that contradicts it. And then we find ourselves in a group setting with a professor. And exactly what I say is what the professor says. 
and then they get sick. And so I realized that no, this is not this is not just about what I'm saying. It's more so that they look at who like they look at what they see on the outside before. And so whatever whatever they want to interpret from like my interaction with them, they have chosen to. But I definitely saw that like distinction. Because if, like for a professor, someone who has built that credibility, yes. And I mean, for me too, to be able to be, to be appointed as your lab leader, it should tell you that like I'm credible in certain, like I'm competent, like just as Annie said, I'm competent, I'm credible to give you instructions under the direction of the professor. And so in your mind, you should understand that like this girl's input is so valuable. But for you, for me, for me to experience being counted at every single thing I said, I totally realized how, like how, like how bad this is, and like this can be also like low key traumatic. It can, it can make you feel like you're probably not good enough. And then in situations where you're actually supposed to talk, you don't even want to talk. Like I find myself being silent in so many circumstances and situations where I could easily speak up because of the fear of being like super, super, super scrutinized and evaluated, which shouldn't be the case, you know? I think it's just really, really sad that before people see any other side of you, they see you as a black person, literally. It's just, it's just really sad. Ethi, do you want to also share like anything you faced with racism and like your views on it? Uh. Yes, so for me, I, I haven't been to the U.S., so I obviously don't know about racism in the U.S., but I can say for Russia, because that's the only place I've been to where there were a lot of whites everywhere. And so it just, like throughout my stay in Russia, right, every single day was something that happened that made me uncomfortable. One particular experience that really stuck out to me was this one time on the bus. I had a space next to me. I had spaces in front of me and behind me, but no one sat next to me. And these people actually needed seats because they had, we, we had all just come out from, from the shopping mall and people had bags and stuff. And no one wanted to sit next to me. Like they would rather stand and almost fall when the bus is turning, rather than sit next to me or sit behind me or sit in front of me. So that was really intriguing for me. It was the very first time that I, I got to just come to the realization that someone could be uncomfortable because of the color of my skin. It was, it was really sad to actually see that for myself because before that, the only the only thing, the only way I'd, I had come close to such an experience was probably just on TV or in books. So having to experience that firsthand for myself was a very telling moment for me. So yeah, that was, that, that is just how close I've come to, to such sad and unfortunate things that you people in the U.S. probably go through a lot of the time. So it's real. And I understand people who don't actually, like, um, people who move to the U.S., for example, 
and don't really get it. And so in the beginning, when people share their experiences, they can't really relate. That was me. So I was actually in Russia and actually had that kind of treatment in Russia. So racism is real. It's sad. And all over the world, people are protesting and hoping that things change, especially in the U.S. So we're all hoping for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, I don't know, it's just been impressed on me to talk about um, something that Courage really like explained in our last um, conversation. He, he, so Courage is a Ghanaian-born, but moved to the U.S. at nine years and pretty much grew up in the hood. So he grew up in, he's from Trenton, New Jersey. When he moved to, to the U.S., I think he moved to Newark. He's lived in Trenton, and he's also lived in Southwest Philadelphia, which are like predominantly black spaces. And so he he shared a lot of his experiences, which you would hear in the previous parts of this episode. And like, I just wanted to highlight what he talked about and how that really relates to systematic of um, systematic racism and how usually in black communities versus white communities, you find that white communities usually live in the suburbs of the cities and usually the black, the black communities, which are disproportionately poorer, have lower access to education, also do not have and cannot afford basic health care because they are also on the lower end. They live in the inner city. And so what would happen is, people who the richer people who are usually in the white neighborhoods do not necessarily mix with the black people so they would come to the main cities to work and then after work they just move move out and go back to the suburbs and so for him his only experience where he started realizing that he was being treated different was his interaction with white kids from church and he realized that no the cops especially with his experiences with the cops, like the cops do it to people like me. They don't do it to people that look like you and realize that, no, this is definitely like a racial thing, which is internalized and it's ingrained. And just, I just reiterate the fact that um, this is a problem in the system. I don't know if you guys saw this week, but there was a video going around on Instagram that like explained systematic racism in like, in like the best way possible, like systematic racism 101, like if you wanted to understand it and how after slavery and segregation and everything, there was like redlining where you could still see that there was that segregation and that disproportionate division in black communities versus white communities. So there was that. And so mm. I felt like he gave a very practical example of how that worked. And so this is definitely a system problem and we just hope things change for the better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Essie, do you want to segue into our new, our next topic of discussion? Yes. So I feel that the next thing we'll be talking about is on, on rape culture and it's it's one of the issues that is also making waves on social media and in various societies like this has been going on even before social media blew it up and so we'll just quickly share some statistics on on rape 
And these are really like disheartening, but it's real. So, <clears throat> so from the from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, um, nearly one in five women and one in seven to one men in the United States have been raped at some time in their lives, including completed forced penetration, attempted forced penetration, or alcohol or drug facilitated completed penetration. And more than half of female victims of rape report being raped by an intimate partner and 40.8% by an acquaintance. For male victims, more than half reported being raped by an acquaintance and 15.1% by a stranger. And approximately one in 41, one in 21 men, sorry, reported that they were made to penetrate someone else during their lifetime. So most men who were made to penetrate someone else reported that the perpetrator was either an intimate partner or an acquaintance. And an estimated 13% of women and 6% of men have experienced sexual coercion in their lifetime. So this is just to set the base that, of course, we know that rape is not only about women and sexual abuse is not only about women. There is a, a good number of percentage of men who also have to go through sexual abuse and, and harassment and rape. And 27.2% of women and 11.7% of men have experienced unwanted sexual contact. And lastly, most female victims of completed rape, that is 79.6%, experienced their first rape before the age of 25. And 42.2% experienced their first completed rape before the age of 18. And so we see that People go through these sexual abuse experiences very early, at very early stages in their lives. Like in Ghana, I think last week or, or about two weeks ago, we heard the news that a two-year-old had been raped. Like mm -hmm. a two-year-old. Because mostly, you know, when we talk about rape, people have people have like these prejudgmental layers of thinking or thoughts that all oh, you sort of making it seem like anyone that has been raped or sexually abused in a way mm -hmm. kind of deserved it because of what they were wearing yeah. or because of probably how they acted or something but how could you explain for a two-year-old you know so these kind of these kind of news sort of buttress the point that rape is not about what someone is wearing or about what someone has said or about what kind of energy someone is given but it's actually about forcing your way even when you haven't been given consent so we'd want to take turns and share what are some of the motivations for someone to to force their way with another person without their consent. When you say, what are some of the motivations, how do you mean? I mean, what, what could get someone in that state of mind? Because people sometimes put that on how someone else is dressed 
or mm-hmm. how someone is talking to me. But what, what could actually get someone to that point? If we have any ideas on Wait, that. Get to that point of actually raping. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think there's any justification. Or well, <laughs> justification. That's true. I mean, nothing can justify the acts of rape. But what I can, like, one of the, I have so many things. One of the thing is, um, I don't know for other cultures, but for our culture, for the Ghanaian culture, uh, we, we justify the men a lot. We make the man, this is in the case of men raping women. We make the man feel he's entitled to the woman's body. He can do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And we allow the man talk about the woman's body however he wants, whenever he wants, even in joking. Yes. Um, and I, another thing that bothers me is the fact that even some women are like encourage it. A little girl comes and tells her mom that her uncle or this grown-up man who's friends with them touched in an inappropriate way. And just because she was taught that or just i don't know it's like just because she sees the man as as a being we shouldn't even say negative things about she shuts the girl up you know Mm -hmm. i personally with the little knowledge i have on psychology and with mental health men like that are just sick and women who are who also rape women like that are also sick they feel they need to dominate um, the other individual, however way they want. And <laughs> I was in a conversation recently with a couple of friends and someone even said, people like that actually, that's what they actually like. They, they like to, when they're having sex with you, they, like, they enjoy the fact that you are screaming and shouting and don't want it. That's what gets them off. And that's sick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's sick. Mm-hmm. I don't know where to go from, but like, I like what you said. It makes me think of how like, typically you realize that a lot of people, those who are being raped constantly, they tend to like dissociate themselves. So they'll be there in body, but their like minds and everything are somewhere else. And they are very, very stiff Mm. because the experience is so traumatic that they have to try and project that. Like they just have to try and take their minds off what's currently happening just to make it less traumatic, but it's a way like they are able to cope with the experience. Especially if you've been if you've been like sexually assaulted or abused for like for a long time. Like it continuously happens and happens. And what happens is that these things have effects on a lot of people that go through that. They always they would end up having like a sort of sexual disorder in the future because everything they cannot even like associate sex with pleasure everything has to be like every anything regarding sex puts them on that negative traumatic experience they've endured over time and so a lot of them will have to go through like therapy just to get out of it which is like very very sad you know yeah the sad part is how many of them can even afford therapy therapy exactly in country Sorry. In countries, 
in countries like Ghana, mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of psychologists. Like I, we have a handful of clinical psychologists. And now we think about countries like Nigeria and other countries in Africa. Mental health is not taken seriously, if I should say. Of course, there are mental health institutions, but you can't afford to, to get a mental health professional to help you work these things out. And so even though these things become a necessity for people who go through sexual abuse, there aren't systems enough to be able to get that person to go through it. And so people live with those scars all through their lifetime. And that is just unfortunate for anyone. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah, it is. I don't know. I agree with Annie. I can't think of anything else that would make people like who motivate people to to do that because it's just except that they are sick and mm -hmm. there, there's something wrong there because it's pleasurable. Like how? Okay, yeah. That's all I can say. They are clearly sick. There's no other way I can like think about it in my mind. You know. Uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking about the other side of things and um, sometimes to those who end up raping, they also, in, like, aside the fact that they are sick and twisted and all of that, sometimes they themselves don't even know what they're doing is rape. Mm. I say this because there are a couple of stories that came up recently and the person that raped them was someone they've been dating for a very long time or someone they are married to. And in that moment, they, they, they've had sex a couple of times, right? They've been intimate several times. But at that moment, he or she didn't want it. But the partner still went at it. And I mean, in that context, it's still rape, right? But that individual, I'm, I'm here thinking half of the time, they don't even understand why at that moment they are their partner is saying, no, I don't want to get on with it. Mm. Does that make, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making it. Does, sense. It does. Like you are bringing the other like non-forceful side of rape that happens that we don't, we don't typically associate with rape, but it's also rape. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that's why for a very long time, a, a married woman or a married man coming forward and saying they were raped was, was weird we're like are you serious you were raped but you're married you know yeah yeah That's why for the longest time they didn't come up with that because people are just gonna laugh at them and think they were crazy yeah. it's, mm -hmm. all, it's all the entitlement thing where people feel like they're entitled to your body like that's how like men specifically maybe it could be some women but men specifically are socialized to think that they are entitled to a woman's body. And so, like, they can determine whatever happens, you know, in that regard. So, yeah. yeah. So, we'll, we'll quickly share views also about consent, right? Because it gets really tricky sometimes. People don't seem to understand what consent means. And for example, as a guy or as a woman, what could constitute consent? 
you know is it just someone saying yes or someone not refusing you know to be in a particular act means that that person actually wants that thing to be done to them so what really is consent and what role does consent play in in intimacy and in rape Mm. well this is what this topic is so heavy but um (laughs) When I, when I think of consent, well, consent basically for me, in my own words, I would say is me agreeing that, yes, I'm going to be sexually active with you in that moment. Like, in that particular moment of us being intimate or whatever, if I'm like, if I, if I don't say, if I don't give my consent of yes or no, if I even cannot say yes or no, and like, how do I even put this? If I'm not conscious to say it, or if I'm even awake to say it, if I haven't given my consent, like it shouldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Abna, what do you think about consent? Um, I think obviously consent consent the basic understanding of consent is that two people agree to participate in sex or anything that's regarding sex and at any point during inter not even intercourse but during the activity and one party like says no then one party says no then it's a no and it just means that one the other one person is not consenting to the activity but you also there's also another part of consent where there isn't that like there isn't that like communication but i think there are also nonverbal forms of communication so as you are like engaging it if you can you can tell when someone is not responsive right yes so if you should be in times like that i think it's your responsibility to take it up and then communicate and like make sure like just make sure that you guys are on the same page when it comes to that just to avoid to avoid anything you know yeah yeah, yeah. that's what i think with consent yeah it's 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 a really it's a really important um it's a really important principle or factor when it comes to rape and sexual abuse like I feel like with consent, you can't get it wrong. You know, if someone, if someone actually wants to get intimate with you, you can't get it wrong. And if that person honestly is not in the mood or doesn't want it, you can't also get that wrong. So I feel like sometimes people force their way because of these elements that we mentioned, either because I feel like I'm entitled to your body because I'm your husband or I'm your wife. And whether you're in the mood or not, your body is mine and so I'll get through with this or maybe I've taken you out and I've I've bought you things and I feel like this is what I want because I've spent money on you and so this needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's very important for us to respect people's bodies and understand that, for example, if someone is wearing a dress in a particular way, the dress is not consent, it's a dress. Like how I'm dressed shouldn't affect 
how you think it shouldn't affect your choices because then you are just a weak vessel who has no control exactly. over yourself. Yeah. I and it's something I definitely think control is something we need to discuss because people are always of the argument that, well, I couldn't control myself. Like it was it was just it was tempting, like I couldn't control myself. There was no way I could I could take hold of the situation. But in reality, like every human being has a brain, has mm-hmm. that some people can like control themselves in a situation and you you want to you want to justify not having consensual sex because I couldn't control myself. Mm-hmm. Gets me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what gets me crazy? You guys just mentioned, you know, probably the dress the person was wearing. But the situations where the woman was even dressed to the teeth. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, right. Even people who wear hijab, they've covered literally their whole body from head to toe. So you can't even see anything but their eyes. <laughs> so that alone tells, like, my mom said, well, it's funny, I was recently talking about rape with her, and she said, the fact that you'd even come up with an excuse, like, that's alone. Mm-hmm. It's just evil and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An excuse for taking advantage of your fellow human's body. You know, like someone, I should be able to wear what I want and not be groped. Yes, I'm not dressing the way I want because. For example, because a lot of people related to skimpy um clothing, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. If I'm wearing a skimpy cloth, I'm not telling you to come and rape me. That's not what I'm communicating across. I think mm-hmm. it's cute and I'm wearing it. Period. I have a question though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to some extent, mothers have a hand in this. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. It's- I think so. I think so because I'm taking it from the point where we teach girls to believe that what you wear or even how you walk could get you in trouble when that shouldn't be the kind of training we are giving to girls. Because when you do that, there is so much burden on someone and so if something happens to a girl child, nine times out of 10, she might feel, oh, this happened because of how I was dressed or because of what I did. Like, it certainly has to be something I had done. Mm-hmm. And that's why this, this unfortunate thing happens, happened to me. So I feel like the training and the, and the socialization should be given in homes, especially and even in churches, should be for both sexes and especially for the, for the boy child to understand that you need to get out of a girl's body. Like you are not entitled to a girl's body because of how they are dressed or because of what they say or because of whatever energy you think they are giving off. And a girl is a full human being. And sometimes people also teach boys to to sort of think that, I don't know where it all came from, 
But people sort of have this impression that when a girl says no, she's actually saying yes. Oh, that gets me mad. <laughs> I know, like, and people, there are still people who believe that when a girl says she's actually saying yes. And so I feel mothers, I don't know if it's in a bid to, to be overprotective or protective of their girls, but these kind of signals and these kind of knowledge they, they put on girls, it's a bedding. And it also doubles up as more like something that leads to a guilt trip if anything should happen to, to a female, especially with regard to sexual abuse and harassment and rape. So we have to teach girls to understand that these kind of things shouldn't be happening to you. And when it does happen to you, you need to speak with someone and get help and not think that it happened because of what you did, i.e. dressing or, or how you walked or how you talked or anything. So for me, that is, that is the standpoint I, I see. Yeah, I think that with the, you talked about speaking up and encouraging girls to speak up. That's also a big problem that a problem that emerges with our current rape culture because what happens is that when you speak up, all these like nonsensical questions and things that come off as justifications come up in the conversation instead of them to focus on the actual thing that has happened they resort to victim blaming they resort to finding out like the context like where was she it was late blah da da daddy daddy da and like forgetting to focus on the actual situation at hand which is rape like today i saw this tweet which i mean is very valid but i personally have problems with and it was like the question, the tweet was a question. So it was like, why aren't women getting charged for lying about being raped? And I know this is even a dicey question in and of itself. But if people come up with questions like this, in my opinion, like I feel like what you are doing is, especially in where we are having a conversation on rape, what you are doing is you are trying, you are finding ways and means to nullify people's experiences or people who have been able to be brave to come up of this, come out of their shell to actually speak up, you know, about the situation. While like I can understand and see that women can potentially lie on um, men who raped them just to get them charged and people would, and I know it's a thing with white women, Sorry for bringing like the twin the race thing, but there's been a lot of stories in the past where a lot of white women would like falsely accuse black men for raping them and things like that. And then they'll be incarcerated and be in jail for like in prison for so many years. And then maybe something will come up and then they'll find they'll find out that that's not the case. But I feel like if you always try to push the conversation in that direction what happens is that a lot of people who are actual victims of rape or actual survivors of rape would not, would not open up to speak about their experiences because then the first thing they'll, be, they'll start thinking about or resort to is, what if, what if they don't believe me? What if I say it and they think I'm lying or I'm trying to falsely accuse somebody? And so yeah. it's kind of like, 
reduce like if they will define all these like what ifs and then they realize that maybe the situation is not quite in their favor and so they will decide that okay like i might as well just keep mute on this like matter like there's no need for me to speak up actually think otherwise <laughs> really what do you think i'm going to be the evil one here <laughs> <laughs> in as much as i agree with what you said abby like there's a point there but at the same time falsely accusing someone of rape is in in that in itself is i don't know i don't know the right word to you but it shouldn't be because we we don't think about the repercussions right the individual you know and or why sh- wh- women women like that i don't want to use the word i don't want to use the word sick but women women who falsely accuse men of rape are just being selfish and insensitive to the to the cause because they are actually the ones diluting the seriousness of rape and taking away the voices of rape victims actually Mm. And women like that, I feel they should be charged. They should face the repercussions of destroying someone's name. Absolutely. Like, I'm not against that. But then, like, if you look, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even actually want to throw any statistics. But mm. like, I would assume that there's that disproportionate, like, how many people actually lie of, about rape? That's people who actually. Happens, though. It still happens. It still happens too. Yeah. But yeah. to some extent, like, do you, like, is it, is it very, the disparity that much, like, isn't it like, I don't want to use a ratio, but it's a smaller ratio of women who would falsely accuse men versus people who actually speak out when they are raped. Well, yeah, well, to continue, to go back to what you said at first too, I don't think it's going to, scare the actual rape victims away because she's because these cases are investigated and like i don't know but so basically if it's proven beyond like any reasonable doubts like there's dna evidence and things to like actually prove their point your point is that like through investigation is usually it's evidence-based so they are usually able to come up with like legitimate evidence mm-hmm. is that that's your point right yeah, there'll always be the evidence the evidence would always be there and if we and the thing is how how are they able to catch the ones that are lying because they, they're not even able to stand their ground they know they're lying and the, and the person who was the person being accused is able to also self or help I know that's totally like a whole different conversation. Yeah, that totally is. But then like that is just my fear for survivors because even for people to speak up, it's a lot that goes into it. So if you have the convers those kind of conversations, but I agree that they also must face the law because like you can't falsely accuse someone and put their whole life at danger when that is yeah. an absolute lie. Like that's just uncalled for. That's also like sickening. That's horrible to do 
you know. I totally, I totally get what you mean. But it's, I know it's very dicey when it comes to those situations. But then that's how, like, I like to think about it because I, I believe a lot more people are raped than a lot more people talk. That's yeah, that's facts. A lot of people don't talk about their experiences with like sexual assault. But mind you, me, there are so many people who have definitely gone through it and haven't said anything about it. So yeah, so that's like the perspective from which I come from. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, and we no one in the world can single-handedly combat this it needs to come from from changes like from conscious changes that we would want to make in our homes in in our schools and even in our churches because what happened in nigeria is is so sad and to think that it happened in a church yeah it's like, unbelievable. The supposedly safe, first of safe places in the world. The world. In the world. And so if that can happen in the church, imagine what is happening in homes, in schools, in offices, in clubs, in hotels. And so there is, there's practically no safe space anywhere in the world. And it's just, be, it's, I don't know. I, I don't want to think that the world has become hopeless, but I feel like gradually the, there isn't much hope anywhere. You know, we just need to hold on to what we know to be true and try to change situations around us. And that's, that's right about all we can do. So we just quickly, to end this, we just quickly take turns and talk about what we think or where we think changes could come from be it in the home or or in schools or in churches, what do we think need to be done to possibly reduce the amount of cases we have been hearing now or even to eradicate rape or any form of sexual abuse anywhere in, in any community? So, Abna, would you want to go first and then we'll take Abiba? Yeah, sure. So I think that these things, almost, not almost everyone, but a, a large number of people, a large number of us have opportunities to have an education. And so I think it's important that there's, there's a way they find, like they put it in our curriculums, because school is one of the places where we spend like a majority of our lives in like trying to gain education, even from like the basic level up to like higher education so if there's a way that like these conversations can even start in in schools from like like kindergarten because it happens to people who are like very very young as well and basically like the way you cannot conceptualize it like as you grow up you make it much more like you you present it in a way that they would understand with their age level. You don't expect um, to teach consent. You can teach consent to like a preschooler, but definitely not in the same way you would teach it if it was in the university level. So a good way is that you can just communicate with them that 
if someone touches you, tell me or say no, you know, and then that way the preschooler understands that this is wrong. I'm not supposed to be going through this then. And so when someone does anything to them or they can be able to like even talk to someone who is attempting to like molest them or assault them and use the language that you've trained them to use. And then alongside, as they grow up, that you add more. But I just feel like it should in some way be deliberately embedded in the curriculum and be like more spoken about in school because that's where we find ourselves more. And we honestly do take some of the things we learn to school as like life knowledge and life skills. So I think it's important that like schools definitely embedded in their curriculum because there's also a system issue so yeah man <laughs> that's like i really like that point abby um i feel as an individual you should be able to read and educate yourself um but in addition to that i also feel it should also start in the homes so yeah homes and as an individual because in as much as, yes, like, like Abena said, the school should have it as part of their curriculum. People school and still come out uneducated. Yeah, that's true. I feel true. human beings, you as a human being, and wanting to be out there and contribute to society and be a better version of yourself every day reading educating yourself putting yourself out there to learn is huge so absolutely yeah. yeah so it just comes it just it just all comes down to the point that as humans we need to be able to unlearn and relearn certain things right yeah if if you don't know a lot, if you probably didn't know a lot about rape or about consent, you can read about it. You can listen to people's experiences on social media. You can read and get to understand what is right to be done and what is not right to be done. It's actually not normal for you to keep an archaic um, ideology, which actually will end up hurting someone and, and leaving like a scar on them for the rest of their lives. And so that verse is actually learning and reading and, and being pushed to do better. I feel like the latter is, is a much more preferred and safe way to go. So we all have a lot to do when it comes to that. And we need to keep educating people, keep, even, even if it's just like very simple things you could say to people around you, to to male friends to female friends something very quick we can put on statuses it can go a long way to make people understand rape and same thing goes for racism it's not something that anyone in the world can single-handedly combat but the little things we do can add up to to a massive change like what is happening is not something that just someone in the world just one person is single-handedly doing but it's like combined forces Mm -hmm. from all over the world that is creating change and i feel it's the same thing that could happen with rape and sexual abuse if we all do the very little things and send across very important messages each day one day 
we would live to see these things being extinct. Like it would be very hard for us to even hear about about these things, these very sad and unfortunate incidents. So thank you guys for for sharing your views on these very important matters. And Abna, I don't know if you have any any last words. Yeah. Um just am I on? Okay. Yeah. So thank you everyone for sharing your your input. Thank you, Afiba. Thank you so much. And thanks, Princess. Princess joined us earlier, but she had to leave. So thank you so much for your input. Yeah, for having us. Yeah. Um the only thing is I just pray and hope that even in our own circles we continue the conversation and the best we can do. Continue the conversation and do the best we can do to like encourage that change that change that needs to be had and so um in addition to this part of the episode i'm going to link we are actually going to link all the funds the funds the funds that are currently available for people to donate to to support the racial to support or fight against racial injustices in the country there are several funds that are currently open and we'll just encourage you to have these conversations in your circles and continue to advocate for Black Lives Matter and also dismantle the patriarchy so that can also stop <laughs> sexual assault from happening because I definitely think all these two things are like ingrained, they are ingrained, deep-rooted. And so there definitely has to be some kind of systematic breakdown for us to overcome and so in our own small ways we hope that this was educative and you had a good time listening to all of us and the different i won't say different perspectives i think we were all we're all we're, page. All, we're all on the same page with these issues mm-hmm. but i hope you can take a few lessons from this and also Practice it in your daily lives. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you. Wait, sorry. Afiba, do you want to do you have any last words before we formally end? No, you guys already said it all. Let's just hope and pray that change comes, change happens for these all these victims. That's um yeah, finally, and I just hope that as when it comes to racial injustices, everyone is aware and makes a stand and, you know. Yeah, all just being silent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for taking time to do this with us. And we'll catch you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.